Hi, I'm April. And I'm Steph. And you're listening to A Thirst. We're a podcast that looks at the latest in pop culture, including film, TV and music, as well as dissecting some very special topics of our choosing. You can find us online with Twitter at The Thirst, facebook.com forward slash The Thirst Pod. We're also on Instagram at The Thirst Pod. We have our blog as well, which is thethirstpod.wordpress.com. You can find us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts by searching for The Thirst. We're also on Podbean and Spotify and a variety of other podcast-based platforms. And if you want to send us an email as well, you can can do it's the first pod at gmail.com this is episode 45 45 have you got i've got nothing oh have you got nothing okay i've got uh 45 being repeated continuously in the lyrics of brimful of asher by corner oh Shop. sure of course brimful of asher number 45. 45 lovely 45 is the title of uh, a 2002 song by elvis costello exciting sure. 45 is also the title of a 2012 song by the gaslight anthem remember when we used to listen to them oh my god the gaslight anthem yes yeah. of course haven't thought about them for a while there we go uh and also 45 years is a film with charlotte rampling and tom courtney oh and some of it was filmed in our fair city as i recall was it? Yeah, some of it was filmed in Norwich. I remember they were filming on Elm Hill and some other of places. Course. You got. I mean, if you're coming to Norwich, you've got to film on Elm Hill, haven't you? Rude not to. It's a very popular location, I hear. Our sole filming location. Oh, no, apart from Sainsbury Centre, which was featured in the Avengers. Oh, Avengers HQ, obviously. Norwich's Obvs. premier hotspot. Jesus. Do you remember when Chris Hemsworth was at... I don't like to think about it because I get really stressed about the prospect that like we were all at work i think just couldn't get away i was at work an hour away as well couldn't get away and it was just like loads of students going like oh cool just met just met robert downey jr and chris hemsworth like, outrageous honestly horrible hate to think of it anyway celebrities who are 45 have you got any i haven't got any no i've been really bad this time that was absolutely fine Mostly because I knew you were the birthday queen, so... Uh, I just really love celebrity birthdays almost as much as um, net worth. Celebrities who are 45. Angelina Jolie. Of course. David Beckham. Hot. So hot. hot. Bradley Cooper. Hot. Drew Barrymore. Is she 45? Wow, okay. Yeah, lovely. Also hot. All hot so far. 50 Cent. Mm, Fine. Ant and Deck. (laughs) Both of them. You're going to have to explain that to people that are outside the UK. Okay, Ant and Deck are, I guess they're TV personalities, aren't they? Yeah. But they were in like a, a, chi- a child, a teenage TV show when we were younger um, together as actors. And now they're kind of like this double TV personality presenter duo. Yeah. Uh, I can't see you, man. <laughs> that one. Google that. Look it up. Yeah, we'll post it sure. on Twitter. We're not going to do that. It's fine. Anyway. Uh, uh, Travis Barker, he's 45. Sure. Hanging around with, like, Machine Gun Kelly. Grow up, Travis. Charlize Theron, as we learn. It's Theron, not Theron. Lauren Hill, Mark Ronson, and apparently MIA, who I thought was, like, the same age as us. No, she's older. Go back to Mark Ronson, though. Let's focus more on that. Sorry. Yes, Mark Ronson, um, who's also a dish. He's so handsome. Yeah, I resent having to fancy Mark Ronson, but I do. You resent it? Why? Expand on that. I don't know. He's just like a posh boy, isn't he? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Mark Ronson has, or had, a really nice house, and he did one of those... Of course he did. He's a posh boy. (laughs) He did one of those architectural digest videos where, like, you show people around your house, basically because you're going to sell your house, so you want to get a good deal for it. That's like the upmarket cribs. The upmarket MTV cribs. Yeah, it's such a nice house, though. It's like a dream house. Yeah, of course it is. Anyway. Any hue. Uh, should we do a bit of news? 
Yeah, let's. So when we were putting together some news, we had to really whittle it down for some such random things. The first thing, though, did sort of landed in our laps this week in a quite a nice way, mostly because one of the people mentioned in it we haven't really talked about on the podcast previously. So it's a nice opportunity to sort of like... It's basically an excuse, wasn't it? So Phoebe Bridges, if you're not familiar with Phoebe Bridges, she's an, uh, an American singer-songwriter. I adore her a great deal. Punisher's a very good album. Punisher is one of my favourite records of this year. It's just brilliant. Anyway, she's great. She released a video for Saviour Complex, which is one of the songs on her album, Punisher. So the music video for this appeared online this week. It's um, in a brilliant piece of synergy. It's directed by Phoebe Wallerbridge. Can I just stop there for a moment just to Go say, on. despite the fact that I know both of these artists fairly well, and, you know, I've spoken about them a number of times... I just automatically get them muddled up because we've got two Phoebe Bridge Bridges. It's just too much. It's really hurting my brain to look at them written down on my outline here because, like, I just... It looks like it's the same thing. It's it just really... looks like you've typed it twice. Yeah, it does. So the video is directed by Phoebe Wallerbridge of Fleabag fame and it stars Phoebe Bridges um, alongside Paul Meskell. So the video itself is black and white, opens up with Paul Meskell looking all beaten up um, and there's a dog in it as well. Charlotte is a little... I think she's a chihuahua cross. Very sweet. Phoebe Bridges and Paul Meskell are in the video together. Um, it's interesting for a number of reasons mostly because Phoebe and Paul have been rumoured to have been dating the rumours began in the summer when Phoebe was spotted in Ireland which now this she could have just been filming this video not entirely sure yeah true Paul and Phoebe had sort of become friends via email she'd watched normal people was really into it he's a big fan of hers they did this Wonderland uh, Q&A via Instagram live during lockdown early this year which was like very overwhelming i remember watching it Mm -hmm. but we mostly just wanted to include this a because phoebe bridges is great but mostly because it was just phoebe and paul and paul is someone who we've not really expanded upon and it just gave us the opportunity just to talk about paul mescal and his thighs he's just such a handsome boy isn't he such a handsome lovely man i really really like that early well like the first public exchange he and phoebe had where she was posting that she'd like finished normal people and was quote-unquote sad and horny on twitter (laughs) and then he replied to it and that's like that's the dream isn't it you tweet your like celebrity crush and then they tweet you back and that that starts like a beautiful friendship so phoebe bridges is all of us we all want to have a twitter exchange and go for lunch in ireland with paul it absolutely reminds me of when Halsey used to tweet Evan Peters oh my God, when she was watching so American much. Horror Story and just talk about how much she fancied him, how she wanted to go out with him. And then she did manifest it. Sadly, they're not together anymore. But that was a brilliant okay. piece of like, oh, it does work. If you, if you are also sort of famous, you can just tweet another famous person and then you might end up dating. You can just ring your PA or whatever and ask for them to set you up a meeting and go for lunch. Imagine if we could just organise that with the people that we take a fancy to. It's crazy. You could do that or alternatively you could literally go horny on Main. Yeah, and that works as well. Apparently it works. It hasn't worked for us. I've done it consistently for years and no one's picked up on it so far. Harry Styles. No one's picking up on it. On those subtweets. Um, is there anything else on the Paul Mescal front that you would like to address here and now? Just because we didn't really talk about normal people at length. We did watch it during the beginning phase of Pandem and it was very overwhelming. Yeah, we missed the we missed the, the podcast boat in particular on Connell's chain. But I do remember <laughs> it fondly. Um, normal people was a great time really, wasn't it? It was really good. That was a nice little 
That was a nice little slice of TV for this year. Um, I just think he's very charming. Seems very down to earth. He is He is literally normal. Like, he just seems really normal, like a normal Irish lad. Yeah, I don't want to draw comparisons to Niall Horan, but I am going to do that now because I think there is nice, nice, handsome boy parallels there. But that's it. 100%. 100%. Also, Paul Mescal was great in the Rolling Stones video for Scarlet, which... Oh, yes, of kind course. Kind of has parallels here because he's also very suited up. Yes. Getting sort of going a bit wild in that video as well. So people like putting Paul in lovely suits in these videos. And I am I'm all the better for it, really. I'm extremely here for it and would like to see it happen more and more if possible. Absolutely. And also, as we mentioned, Saviour Complex and Punisher as a whole record is very good and people should check it out if they haven't already, which seems mad in 2020 that you wouldn't have listened to that. But Yeah, definitely. It's a very uh, 2020 appropriate record, I think. So I'm sure it will be appearing on lots of people's end of the year lists. On to something else that I also love dearly. Quick shout out to David Lynch. So a few days ago, industry newsletter Production Weekly announced that David Lynch is apparently working on a miniseries for Netflix. Interesting development given that Lynch seemed to lose interest in making TV after Twin Peaks, the original Twin Peaks. I'm sure I read somewhere that he said that he didn't want to do TV anymore, like back in the day. Um, And then he also took an 11-year break after Inland Empire. And then he returned with Twin Peaks The Return that we've discussed before on the podcast. Big fans of The Return of Twin Peaks. And also last year, or I think it maybe either came out early this year or end of last year, there was the Netflix short What Did Jack Do with the Monkey. Oh, yes. I think it was the end. Was it the end of last year? I have no concept of time anymore. No, neither do I. I have a feeling it was near Christmas, but then it also could have been the new year. Time is meaningless. Could have been last month. So far, we know that this uh, miniseries has the working title Wisteria. Lynch is listed as the writer and the director, and we know it will be shot in LA. He's a longtime producer friend, Sabrina S. Sutherland, who was involved in Twin Peaks, Inland Empire and Twin Peaks The Return, is on board too. The official start date of the project's shoot is May 2021, but the release date is obviously unknown because they haven't even started shooting it yet. Netflix has declined to comment and actually this could all end up being a rumour. I mean, it would be a very, it'd be quite a bottomed out rumour, but, right. you know, there's not, we're not 100% confirmed on it. We're very excited How do you feel about it? It was really exciting and interesting to see this news and I was really, really hyped. And then I looked and it was like with a start date of May 2021. And it's like, (laughs) I know time is literally elastic at this stage. Like time is meaningless. But also why are you announcing this like now to be like, oh, by the way, we're going to film it in five months. Like when I saw the announcement, I just assumed it would be like, it's going to start filming in January. Yeah. Initially, I thought it was going to be released in May 2021. Yeah, me too. We haven't even started this bloody thing yet. We could have a whole other pandemic that's going to, I don't know why I've just said that as a cursed sentence. Oh, horrible. I think, when I saw the the like headline on Twitter, I clicked the link thinking like, oh my God, I hope it's going to be like a surprise, like they've been filming it for the last few months. That's what they call clickbait April. That is the definition. I know, I fell for it. Um, but it is really exciting though. It's exciting to see that he's working on a new project. We, like you said, we really, really enjoyed Twin Peaks The Returns a few years ago. And we're also, you know, big advocates of David Lynch's work generally. So it's a foregone conclusion that we were going to be hyped on this regardless. Um, it would just be good if it does come to fruition and that it isn't just some sort of like don't overpromise and then it doesn't happen because america implodes or something if it does happen 
it, it's bound to be very Lynchian because obviously it's Lynch and also Sabrina Sutherland's on board. So, you know, if you're the producer of films like Inland Empire, you'd expect things to be pretty strange or kind of on a par with maybe Twin Peaks The Return because that really was a very unusual piece of television by most standards. I can kind of see why Lynch would agree to do more television nowadays because I feel like you do, in a weird way, you have more freedom with television now and probably bigger budgets. I think the thing with television, I was thinking about this earlier today actually with reference to something that we were going to come and talk about later, but I think on TV now you just get the space to actually do a great deal, yeah. The Return felt like a gigantic movie in a way, but, you know, it was so incredibly spaced and paced spaced and paced you know it really took its time and it felt so quintessentially lynchian who was that with that wasn't with oh god it was showtime in the u.s i think so showtime are happy to give lynch that kind of um space and budget i imagine netflix will just let them do whatever he wants won't they i think with the name it alone i think netflix know they'll get a lot of people coming to the platform specifically for any david lynch project so especially given how successful twin peaks was after returning after like literally you know decades Mm, absolutely i have also really enjoyed that lynch has embraced lockdown oh my god yes very very naturally uh i think he's just not bothered by being stuck at home drinking coffee and painting and filming weather reports but uh, i just don't see it as being much of a stretch from his general daily life no he's he's fine isn't he and uh but he has been busy did this he had this daily video series which is his uh what is david working on today And then he's also been doing a lottery of sorts recently called Today's Number Is, which is still running if you go and check (laughs) YouTube. He's still picking a number out of a bowl every single day, uh, much to everyone's delight. I can't say I've tuned in for every single one, but I bet there are people, there are people who have. But yeah, we're just we're looking forward to it and fingers and toes and everything crossed that this does actually happen because I'd love to see some original Lynch content. So I feel this week like we have been particularly fed (laughs) because we had this lovely Phoebe Bridges video. We had this lovely Lynch news, which is very on brand. And then it has truly been the season of Harry Styles. What a time to be a Harry Styles fan at the moment. Truly blessed. A bunch of notable occurrences. We've had something new pretty much every day to discuss in recent weeks, which has been lovely. So we're going to cover just a couple of notable instances. Uh, So 13th of November, Harry became the first male to grace the cover of Vogue solo. Playtime with Harry Styles was written by Hamish Bowles, photographed by Tyler Mitchell, who's a young photographer. I think he's only like 25, mid-20s. He became the first black photographer to shoot a US Vogue cover. And he was styled by Camilla Nickerson. This was a Vogue shoot that we were... I feel like it dropped out of the blue. This wasn't one we were anticipating as much. I don't think we knew anything about it. I think I just remember going on... I think I assume it was probably just Instagram and seeing a picture and being like, holy shit, had no idea. Just dropped. Lovely. Great time. Amazing photo shoot. One of the best ones we've had of Harry for quite a while. I I guess very androgynous. I mean, it's been talked about a lot. The outfits in particular on this shoot and on another one that we'll talk about in a minute um, have been talked about a lot. 
But I really liked this, the shoot and this interview. I liked that it was quite a family affair. So Harry Lambert, who is Harry's, Harry, Harry's stylist, was on the shoot, of course, and as mentioned, there were some outfits designed from Harris Reed, who's a friend of Harry's, and his sister, Gemma, was also part of the shoot, which was lovely. Were there any highlights for you from this this interview in particular? Well, I'm just reminding myself of the full photo set, so I just wanted an excuse to look at it, to be honest. I mean, I do feel a little bit like, without dwelling too much about what 2020 could have been, Harry was going to be a big component of mm-hmm. of how good this year was going to be for us in theory and the timing of this felt really pleasant and and much needed and also because it is almost a year since we went to see Harry at the tiny electric ballroom in London. Christ yeah it really is almost a year isn't it? So it was just sort of like nice to just be reminded like actually you know of how why we love him so much and how great he is. I mean that entire photo set is just a lot there's just the, the amount of patterns in it and how I could just look at it for ages. Yeah, it is beautifully styled, isn't it? One thing I know that we've always said about Harry is just how keen he is to collaborate and get involved. And, you know, he's got such a good team around him in terms of people that understand him as a person and what he likes aesthetically and how he likes to present himself. So it was sort of quite nice just to see that that, that you know, continues through. Oh, I'm just looking at it now. God, that shirtless picture of him in those hand-painted trousers actually cannot even look at it and the kilt with the bite and the oversized jackets and just he's just i mean i don't i don't want to fixate on people's physique too much but it has to be said that harry's physique is like particularly i don't even know what the word for it is he's just yeah it's just unbelievable really i mean i'm quite worried that they mention in this article that he went on a six-day juice cleanse for the shoot, which I'm not here for in the slightest. That sounds horrible and makes me quite sad because I, I don't want anyone to have to go on a six-fucking-day juice cleanse for a, to take some photographs. Awful. So he does look... But he does look wonderful. He does. And I, th- I do like the fact that it mentions that, like, the V&A has requested his... Oh, yeah, his jumper. Yeah, wants his jumper in in their collections as to document how people got creative during like the pandemic. And I just think that like that's just so cool. Like I think it just shows his impact, like beyond just his music, just him as a, as a figure, as a style icon. And I think that it's really interesting because it was also ten years of One Direction this year, mm, mm. and it's just really interesting. I think continually just to think about his evolution as a performer, as an artist, and absolutely. It. I mean it. <laughs> They do, they do raise One Direction again in this, this piece. Uh, and this also applies to the second cover story that we'll go on to. I don't mean to sound negative when I say this, but I am a little bit bored of him having to justify his time in One Direction all the time. I kind of... It's I don't really have tedious. Anything, yeah, I don't have anything... I'm quite happy to hear him talk. Um, and I understand why people bring up One Direction, absolutely. But... There's been numerous occasions now where he's been quoted talking about how actually he did really enjoy his time in One Direction, actually. And it's kind of getting boring for me to hear. So he must be really bored of having to say it. I get the impression that every single interviewer wants to be the person that baits him into saying something negative about One Direction. Yeah. So that it becomes this like big newsworthy item. Which is so never going to go anywhere because he's not... A, he clearly didn't feel that way and B, 
Harry's such a tight media machine in that way that even if he did feel a certain way about certain experiences, he's never going to bring that up. So it just gets a bit boring hearing, like he, you know, he almost has to say verbatim the same thing over and over again. It's, it is one of those things where it's like you, the, the interviewers always know what they're doing. and But the thing is, they forget that Harry also knows what he's doing as well. So he knows that even if he was feeling particularly relaxed with that interviewer he's never going to slip up and say anything even dismissive about it because he also understands the legacy that that band has and also that he wouldn't be where he is now without the legacy of that band so why would you want to just turn around and be like oh yeah i hated it like why would you bother one thing i did just want to mention actually i've just remembered is mentioned in the article is the fact that um he moved in with mitch and sarah oh yeah absolutely i found delightful to think again another another family affair um, absolutely harry surrounds himself with these people that he spends a lot of time with and they do know him intimately beyond just you know being musicians in his band on tour which is as you say it's just really lovely um and also he's planning he's contemplating a move to tokyo interesting apparently he likes making soup which i think is quite boring but i mean go off he's pescatarian so we are in fact the same person my favorite bit and sorry vogue because they probably don't want people fixating on this but i really really enjoy the fact that they took a joke that harry made about uh gemma being gemma his sister oh my god harry introduced gemma his sister as quote my sister from the same womb which, you know, like sister from another mister, blah, blah, blah. So he made this joke and they appear to have taken this quite literally and assumed, I don't know how to interpret that as Gemma and Harry have the same mother, but a different father. I believe it went into print saying that. (laughs) And they've had to since obviously retract that from the online version and post an apology at the bottom of the article saying that due to a misunderstanding in the interview... Harry and Gemma were mischaracterised as having different fathers in the print version of the story. Vogue regrets the error. I just don't know how they even got there. I honestly can't believe it got to print. Like, I genuinely can't believe it. My sister from the same womb. How does that mean? I don't understand. Come on, guys. Hilarious. And one other thing I wanted to mention, actually, before we move on, was some of the commentary around the article after it was released. So... Obviously, the article itself and the photo shoot was trending across all social media. And for the most part, people were overjoyed and very happy with the looks in particular. There was some minor hit back from conservative personalities around the outfits in the shoot. So um, is it Candice Owens posted an extremely boring bring back manly men post, which Harry has since mocked on his own social media Uh, It's just a really boring conversation to be having, really, this unnecessary discussion around um, what constitutes uh, masculine or manly or male-appropriate clothing. It also just feels funny for it to be brought up because I love Harry, I love this photo shoot, I love the way that he expresses himself through clothing, but he is by no means the first person to have done this. So it just, it's a strange thing to be, I don't know, going over the same territory again with him when we have had many, many icons before who have already done this pre-2020. I do think it would be completely remiss to sort of discuss the photo shoot and the piece itself without kind of addressing some of those like completely valid criticisms. And I did find all of the reactions and immediate discourse around it, both like inevitable and I suppose very useful. Mm. Um, But 
I mean, I will say the conservative kickback around it was just like, absolutely. Come on, guys. Haven't you got other things to be worrying about right there's now? So, there's so much other shit going on for them to maybe be worried about more that I just can't even be bothered to pay attention to it, to be honest. But it's just a waste of everyone's time and energy, isn't it? Yes. And I guess in some ways as a, a response to that or um, maybe that article shaped uh, a following article so on the 2nd of December so the other day Harry graced the front cover of Variety which is a feature that fans anticipated a bit more due to his being crowned Hitmaker of the year this year so the article was titled this charming man while we're wild about Harry Styles Bit of an awkward title. Yeah. Not sure about the Smiths reference, but there you go. Uh, It's written by Shirley Halperin and photographed by Parker Woods. Lots of fruit-eating shots in this. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yes, we're enjoying it very, very much. As you say, we have been sort of metaphorically and maybe even actually fed by Harry Styles in this photo. (laughs) But a lot of it does, uh, this interview does address his relationship to clothes and his style, uh, which a lot of it seems to kind of echo this previous interview that came out a couple of weeks before. I mean, have you read this interview? I haven't read all of it, no. I've only read a few excerpts from it at this stage. I mean, I have to say that the photography is a joy. For me, the the feature around it is kind of a bit of a repeat of the Vogue story in lots mm, of ways. That's the impression I got. Yeah, it just covers a lot of the same ground. And as we were talking about before, Harry being a sort of a very well-honed media machine in that he is very good at being quite tight-lipped about specific things and also you feel like you're you're made to feel like you're getting a candid interview with Harry but you're never actually really learning much that's new bar that one Rolling Stone article I would argue. Absolutely I think that was something I was going to mention actually in that I know and that's something we've definitely mentioned on this podcast mm. before and I think we even discussed it when Vaughn was here as well yeah. and she came on the show it's just this idea of like somehow knowing lots about Harry Styles but actually really not knowing anything about him at all and I think when you read a lot of interviews with him back to back like if you were actually to make a list of facts that you actually gain from anything it's not much. It's all kind of the same like he talks about One Direction he talks about the fact that he enjoyed One Direction he obviously doesn't feel embarrassed by One Direction and he's grateful for all of it talks about his relationship with Stevie Nicks and how they've got this kind of friendship going on and they're they're frequently in touch talk about his approach to fashion so it's all I mean it's lovely but it is very much a repeat of what we've been told before however I mean that's not that's not necessarily bad because we've got this amazing photo shoot to accompany it as well he does talk a little bit about Black Lives Matter in 2020 and he acknowledges that he's not been outspoken enough in the past which is probably the most important thing to take from that cover story but just lovely I mean it is very rare for us to have two of these in such a short time frame so yeah the timing of it was very good wasn't it perfect and one other quick thing is that we've had a lot of stills from Don't Worry Darling which is the new drama thriller from Olivia Wilde after her book smart directorial debut Uh, Styles is playing the husband of Florence Pugh and it's uh, the film has been described as a 1950s utopia in the California desert so we're just very excited for that we are and I will just actually go on record as saying that I was extremely sceptical about the casting of Harry if only because he was replacing Shia LaBeouf I know I'm so sorry mildly disgruntled however having now seen the paparazzi shots i absolutely am here for it and i am fine about it i would say i'm even looking forward to it even more now so there we go oh lovely result 
So just one final thing that we just wanted to mention, if only because we had sort of had it to talk about for a while and it kept getting bumped just because there was just other things. More important shit going on. More important shit going on. So obviously we will preface this by saying that we are obviously a pop culture based podcast. And obviously part of that is that we are very interested in celebs and what they are doing with their lives. We fully respect that everyone has the right to have their own private life and not, you know, let me and Steph have the ins and outs of their every movement as much as I would love to know what everyone's doing at unreasonable really but go because I'm nosy um but we recently I say recently at some point during the vast expanse of lockdown both started following this Instagram account called Dumois 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 so if you don't uh, if you are unfamiliar with Dumois it is a private Instagram account but it has almost half a million Instagram followers its sort of tagline is that it's they are curators of pop culture, um, although it has been confirmed that it is only one person, which to think about is actually pretty astounding because they're very relentless. I was going to say, I don't I don't know how they fit this into their day. No, the amount of like intel and information they must get on a daily basis is that how is this not a full time job anyway? Maybe it is. Right. Well, yeah, at the start of quarantine, so back in March, the Instagram sort of basically took off then i think because celebrities suddenly couldn't do anything and i think we will speak to this in that like when we were trying in those early days before we took our sort of brief hiatus we were kind of trying to when it came to like news it was like what is anyone doing at this stage it really was just a vast expanse of nothingness wasn't it so we completely get this and it basically what Dumois does is it shares intel, celebrity tips, blind items, funny celebrity run-ins, all of this type of thing. It shares them mostly in its Instagram stories. So I find it quite funny that you have to be, it's private, it's a private account and you have to like request it to get accepted. But you can just watch everything on Instagram stories anyway, who knew? So basically like there's been a couple of articles written of late. So they've been in the New York Times, they've been in L. Um, they've been on a couple of other sort of like fairly well-known news outlets. It often gets, rec- this makes me die, it gets referred to as being Instagram's very own gossip girl, mostly because <laughs> it's all anonymous. And it's like interesting to me because a lot of celebrities follow it. I've heard it talked about on countless podcasts to this point. I think it's actually where I first became aware of it was by listening to another podcast where they were mentioning it. Mm. Um, it's interesting to think about the fact that I'm 100% sure that industry people follow it i wouldn't be surprised if half of the tip-offs oh they're totally coming from insiders absolutely completely but it's just this thing that like initially i started following just fully out of intrigue because it did get mentioned on a podcast and then there was just a flurry of things happened on the account they were sharing sort of things and i kept sending stuff to you and then just being like you absolutely need to follow this and then essentially i deleted instagram for a period of time at one stage and i swear to god the only reason i got it back was just because i was missing dumois because i just was getting really consumed with all these gossip (laughs) i just love celebrity gossip there was this live journal community that i was very actively a fan of for for a number of years which is oh no they didn't shout Mm -hmm. out to anyone who used to use ontd for a long period of time but it's just just like absolutely bizarre how much this has taken off and how it's got its own like lexicon there are like nicknames for celebrities there are like little things they do on instagram stories it's so interesting to me in this particular year when we're all no one's really doing anything but it's been so interesting to see what celebrities are doing Mm -hmm. and it's been funny as well because a lot of them keep getting caught out like when people are seeing them out and about and they're like not wearing masks or doing this this and this 
this or getting celebrity tip-offs saying, you know, like, oh, this person had COVID or this person was seen flying into X location. And um, yeah, just really wanted to talk about it, really. And uh, my favourite Dumois-related thing from this week is the discovery that someone had sent a blind item about a famous person having a Pinterest board that was, like, all about one specific oh actor. God. Yeah. And this is the thing as well, is that when she gets sent tip-offs, when she gets sent anonymous things from people saying, like, oh, I know this thing about a particular celebrity, the person who runs the account will take out the names and stuff. Because obviously, from a legal point of view, you don't want to get sued or anything. So it's always, like... Pretty much fully anonymous, isn't it? So it's... You don't... So it is gossip, but it's sort of safe gossip because it's safe gossip. you're rarely actually told who it's about. You're just left to speculate who the celebrity might be. Sometimes things are confirmed. And once things are confirmed in the news, she often goes back and says like, oh, this it, this was about this. So the thing this week about the Pinterest board, the celebrity that had a Pinterest board about a actor was Christina Aguilera. So one of her fans found a Pinterest board that was entirely about aaron taylor johnson <laughs> so random so this fan found it and then realized that the user account was christina regulera and then they shared it like this information online then christina had to go and delete it so i mean <laughs> it's good to know that she also is like extremely thirsty for other celebrities even i don't have a pinterest board of celebrities that i fancy of not just aaron taylor johnson i truly i don't have one because i'm scared that someone will some me a person with no fan base (laughs) or i don't know position in the public eye no reputation to speak of i'm worried that people might discover you know if i had a board i'm worried that someone might see it so the fact that christina aguilera is just bored at home compiling this well she's clearly trying to do a phoebe bridges and is hoping that it's going to come to something but he's uh, married though he's married so uh i I don't think it's going to happen so yeah i just wanted to mention dubois mostly because we found it particularly funny when the uh, army hammer divorce news was announced there's a lot of army hammer on there quite consistently which is great it's constantly it's a great thing to check out in the morning over breakfast when i'm eating my porridge i like to flick through it so if you don't already follow that account you definitely should and then coupled with that i like to periodically look at blind gossip the website because which we've discussed before because that has some real goers on there as well so um if you're into if you're into pop culture gossip which i assume you are because you're listening to this podcast you should definitely give them both a try that's news over and done with Let's move on to some things that we've been enjoying or maybe not enjoying recently. TV first, um, something that we've both been really looking forward to for quite a long time that appeared or dropped in the US uh, a little while ago. And we're always slow to catch up over here in the UK, but it's finally arrived. Uh, We Are Who We Are is the eight episode drama TV series co-created and directed by our favourite Luca Guadagnino for HBO and Sky Atlantic. It's a coming-of-age story set on a functional US military base in Italy in 2016, and it follows two American 14-year-olds, Fraser Wilson and Caitlin Harper Polythress. The series explores friendship, first love, identity, and immerses the audience in all the messy exhilaration and anguish of being a teenager. It's a story which could happen anywhere in the world, but in this case, it happens in this little slice of America in Italy. Thank you to Wikipedia for that really strange introduction that I did not write myself. The cast includes Jack Dylan Grazer, Chloe Sevigny, Alice Braga, Jordan Christine Simon, Spence Moore II and Scott Mascudi. 
The series premiered in its entirety at the San Sebastian International Film Festival on the 20th of September, and it premiered on HBO in the US in September 2, and in Italy in October. We got it on BBC Three on the 22nd of November, trailing behind, uh, and we are both halfway through so we've both watched four episodes and we've we've given it a rest there to give our first reactions to the show as I say it's something that we were both really looking forward to and yeah I'd like your first reactions please obviously we haven't seen the whole thing yet but there have been I think there have been strong reactions from critics all around some people loving it some people not so sure so how do you feel so far? Okay, so the wait for this was like extremely agonising and seeing a lot of people online reacting to it in quite a visceral way was really distressing because Mm -hmm. it's something that as soon as it was announced, like Luca doing TV, we were like extremely psyched. And then when we saw the cast list, I know that we'd had a lot of discussion about it. I'm a big Kid Cudi fan. Mm -hmm. Um, I love Chloe Sevigny. Jack Dylan Grazer is someone who we've talked about in the context of It before, but he's also appeared in a few other things that we both enjoyed and so he's a young actor that you know I think is probably going to go on and do great things so generally the cast as a a whole working alongside Luca it being set in Italy in this very specific time period so all of these things I was kind of really really looking forward to so it was sort of like really driving me insane that we were having to Mm -hmm. wait for so long so I came to it with high expectations. I was really apprehensive when we were finally given the opportunity to watch it. But I will say that we both watched it in very similar circumstances. Mm. And it honestly felt like such a big, warm Luca hug. I feel like Luca Guadagnino has a very specific aesthetic which often runs through his films. And if you do watch any of them back to back, you will notice there are very similar aesthetic and stylistic choices that he makes consistently across the board and I was really interested to see whether those would work in television episodes as well as they do in film and for me they absolutely do it just has this overall like Luca vibe I think the fact that it's set in Italy really really helps there are lots of things where he does with the framing and the composition of the shots he's obviously got a good relationship with his cinematographer there are lots of lingering shots of like just objects and things that reminded me extremely of Call Me By Your Name but then also things like Big a splash as well i just feel like it's really difficult to talk about it and my reaction to it without thinking about call me by your name because Mm -hmm. that's the root of where you know our love of luca comes from it feels very much like it is it could exist within the same universe doesn't it like just down the road elio and oliver are having this relationship and for me it completely builds on that the the sort of Mm. call me by your name popularity and the legacy of it i think there's really you could make really interesting comparisons to call me by your name in that there's both this idea of sort of a bit of a culture clash so you've got this american base in italy so you've got like the american kids who some of them have grown up largely in italy some of them are coming from the states recently Mm. Um, you've got that sense of outsider you know being an outsider of what it's like to be displaced like physically in terms of the location but then also because perhaps you don't necessarily align with a lot of the other people that you're living alongside or might go to school alongside I also think that you can't talk about Jack Dylan Grazer and you can't talk about Fraser the character that he plays without automatically thinking about Timmy and this is something that we'll probably come on to Mm. Um, but in the first four episodes I just feel like Lucas done such a good job of kind of setting up this sort of little community sort of showing you a little insight into this life in Italy this slice of American life like you said 
but I was really sold on the characters and actually sort of within a few episodes you kind of do understand them I think Mm. and I think the show to this point with the four episodes that we have seen so far I think it is doing interesting things when it comes to identity and sort of the impact that living in this environment might have on you as a young person but I just think that so much of what Luca does is sort of like world building like he Mm. just sets up these little environments and and lets the characters play within these sort of very specific situations and for me immediately as soon as that first episode started so the music the lingering shots just the the Italianness of it all it did just feel like immediately for me anyway sinking into something that I knew I liked and I was going to have a good time with mm, absolutely I think I'm totally on board with you with all of that I think it wouldn't surprise you or anyone to hear that I was just completely obsessed with this off the bat it contains all those elements that you've mentioned that I really enjoy so that kind of coming of age storytelling the fact that Luca is directing it set in sunny Italy the pop culture you know the pop soundtrack you mentioned the word like lingering there is this particular way that Luca's camera lingers on characters that feel so typically him and you kind of see it across everything he does and the pacing is very typical too that sort of slow sort of languorous you very much become absorbed in like the minute details of people's like domestic lives you've got yes. this kind of voyeuristic look at at people's home lives and and different aspects of their day and their relationships jack dylan grazer is amazing as fraser he's this quirky teen fresh from nyc he's like utterly captivating as a personality but also there's something like absolutely not right there he's so intriguing but he's also hard work he's sort of colorful and unusual and but also very violent so i feel like my reaction to fraser is like definitely not what my reaction to elio was in that like there's something there's something really unlikable about fraser i think there's something really frightening about him i think Mm. he's sort of i think his relationship with his mother in particular you know someone who holds a huge amount of power on the military base but their relationship is it's scary actually especially the first few times where you see him in particular lash out Uh, and there are these there are these really close parallels to elio so in the first episode, you've got Fraser cycling around on his bike oh, around the military base, around Italy, exploring the landscape and the community, which feels very Elio. But as you say, like there's almost like a physical resemblance in some ways between Timothy and Jack. It's the tiny, tiny little moustache that neither just of them the little tash, the little, little tash. tiny baby tash. But then they are so different in other ways. We get to know Fraser, and then in the second episode, we get to know Caitlin, who is just yeah stand out as well really stand out characters but then you also get to know the other players in the friendship group and all of their individual struggles and their journeys of self-discovery which you kind of see a lot of that in the fourth episode that we've both recently watched with the wedding which is feels very (laughs) um it's quite an interesting companion piece to euphoria as well yes they do very different things but there are some some slight parallels there as well it's interesting that they've both come out recently the music as you said is like it again feels like a very luca thing like fraser chooses music to accompany his day and like everything he does and it's so carefully soundtracked and it crosses like genres and decades and i think the soundtrack was curated by luca and you've got like prince and blood orange and bowie and aaron carter and it's a I don't know. It's like a soundtrack that you've, I mean, you linked me to the soundtrack straight away, I think, after watching the first episode. Yeah. Because it's like 
automatically something that you want to go and listen to. It's just so well curated and it's really interesting the way that, because it is in a modern context, because it's mm. like 2016, the way that it just, I think, shows that how like young people and even, you know, it's something I do on a daily basis, especially now with the sort of being at home all the time, is mm. that you just curate this thing for yourself mm-hmm. throughout the day. And it, Fraser is constantly putting on songs or changing, you know, tracks to kind of fit whatever he's doing. And that felt very real to me in a way that actually like... You do day to day don't you yeah like your gym soundtrack and your i don't know work soundtrack your cooking soundtrack blah 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 blah. you have all these different and fraser kind of takes it to like another level yeah his is like what i listen to whilst i'm speaking to this particular person soundtrack right um you've also got amazing score from Devonte hines which is is the piano really oh, again the, right, piano the piano makes me think of call me by your name so much there are so many like there's like an inbuilt part of me that just kind of i don't know vibrates as soon as i hear piano playing like that same 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 it's, um i don't know i've just loved it and i do understand that like the pacing might not work for some people and you know I don't know entirely where these episodes are heading like what direction these characters are going but I'm I think we're both quite happy and quite content to just sit with these characters for the duration you know it's very slow but it's intense with feeling and I'm quite happy to live in that world I just feel fully sucked and submerged in that world when I'm watching yeah I think I've been thinking about quite a lot is that I would be really interested to know what someone who had either no familiarity with Luca's work previously Mm. or has seen his work but isn't particularly attached would think of it because Mm. I think so much of what I enjoy about it are those elements which are like just constant through lines through the work that he produces oh yeah there's so much that makes you think of a bigger splash as well like yeah and I do think that um, it would be interesting to know what someone would make of it when they don't have those necessary reference points there. Mm. And I do think it's interesting that you mentioned Euphoria. Actually, I rewatched Euphoria not that long ago mm. for the second time. And I really enjoyed it my second run through just as much as I did the first time because I was particularly worried that where that show was concerned that I just would have a completely different reaction to it. But it's really interesting to think of them alongside as just sort of two representations of like teenage life they're like absolute opposites in some ways yeah like euphoria is very much the loud (laughs) i don't know the loud it's so intense compared to we are who we are which actually just feels like relaxed isn't the right word Mm -hmm. because it's completely not relaxed in times but it's just this completely different sort of tone tone completely yeah Yeah. but it would be really interesting as you say actually for if anyone's um watched it and they haven't as you say, they're not really familiar with Luca or they're not that fussed about Luca in his previous work. It'd be really good to hear what people think because I think we're both just really, really enjoying it and really needed it and um, I just can't wait to finish it, really. Yes, me too. So that was TV. Now moving on to movies. Now, the next thing we're going to talk about is slightly left field for you more than it is me. Um, It's sort of seasonally appropriate as we are recording this four days into December. It is happiest season. So if if you've not been online in the last week or so and are unfamiliar with Happiest Season, it's a 2020 American romantic comedy film directed by Clea Duvall um, from a screenplay that was written by Duvall and Mary Holland, who is also in the film. It stars Kristen Stewart, Mackenzie Davis, Alison Brie, Aubrey Plaza, Dan Levy, Mary Holland, Victor Garb and Mary Steenberg. And it follows a woman who struggles to come out to her conservative parents during Christmas time. 
the film was released in the States at the end of November, so I think it was Thanksgiving weekend it was released on Hulu and then internationally on November 26. Now, the reason it's slightly neff field is not because it stars a bunch of people that um, we have talked about before. It's more that it's a Christmas film, and I don't think we've ever talked about a Christmas film ever in the history of this podcast, mostly because you never watch Christmas films. Steph, what was the last Christmas film you watched previous to this? Right, so the last Christmas film I watched was Black Christmas, which is a slasher film... (laughs) And the Christmas film I watched before that was Black Christmas. So I basically don't do Christmas films. No, and so that's that's one thing to bear in mind. Bar humbug. Bar humbug. I do have a real soft spot for Christmas films. You love films. a festive film, don't you? Yeah, I do. I just feel a little bit like... December is a really good excuse to re-watch all of my favourite Christmas films while also like fully embracing all of like the crap Christmas films. For example, it's the reason I've seen Jack Frost multiple times and also have endured things like Four Christmases with Reese Witherspoon and Vince Vaughn. So I just yeah, really like lean into this stuff. Yeah. No, and it's just completely not in your wheelhouse. But the reason we wanted to talk about this is because it has been getting a lot of chatter online critically. Um, and also just because it does star people that we like, for example, Kristen Stewart and Dan Lev so what was your um i'm gonna make you go first because for comedy value what was your feeling prior to watching this and then what were your first thoughts whilst watching this what was your reaction to it literally the only reason i wanted to watch this film was pretty much as you say for Kristen stewart and dan levy i don't think you could have persuaded me to watch this otherwise i just don't have any feeling towards christmas films sorry everyone apart from i don't know nightmare before christmas or something but for the most part i did enjoy this it is entirely carried by Kristen stewart who is extremely attractive and cool and also very sympathetic as a character which she's not always very sympathetic i have to say like, I don't know whether it's her roles or I don't know what it is, but I mean, I love Kristen Stewart, but she's not always the most, she doesn't always play the most sympathetic characters. So she was incredibly sympathetic in this film. The idea of being Kristen Stewart and having Dan Levy as your best friend and then Aubrey Plaza as your co-conspirator is a <laughs> lot. It is a lot. So the casting of this is just like wonderful and is is the thing that drew me in. And it's it's got all of the kind of expected festive tropes. So home for the holidays and family and sibling conflicts and secrets and exes and all of that kind of stuff. But obviously the main difference here is that Harper isn't out to her parents about Abby. And I think this is potentially the first kind of queer Christmas rom-com by the sounds of it. I don't know if there's been many at least. Um, I don't think I've, again, I'm not a good barometer because I don't watch a lot of Christmas films, but I don't think I've seen one with a focus on this story. So very Christmassy in those, in that regard, um, with those kinds of festive tropes. However, I did not expect this film to make me feel as angry and as shit as it did in some parts. It's interesting in that sense, isn't it? I wasn't expecting that. No, so I think this is part of partly why the the Kristen Stewart and Dan Levy of it all aside, I think part of the reason why we wanted to watch it and discuss it, particularly on the podcast itself, was just because of the amount of kind of discussion around it. So 
you know, as I kind of alluded to, it does follow a woman. So it's Harper is a character played by Mackenzie Davis. She is in a relationship with Abby, who's the character played by Kristen Stewart. Abby doesn't really particularly like Christmas. She's just like not bothered about it, tends to spend it on her own, like has her reasons, fine. And Harper invites her to go home with her to her family to spend Christmas so, so that Abby isn't alone. Abby's under the impression that, spoilers by the way guys, just so you know, Abby's under the impression that Harper's parents know that they are in a relationship but that is not the case and Abby still goes home with Harper for the holidays and then the entire kind of Christmas period is spent, the two of them have to spend it in the house but not together, Abby is just Harper's roommate, that's the sort of ruse they are pulling and I think the thing that has come out of the film a lot in a lot of the discussion and also was something that we viscerally both reacted to was just how Harper's behaviour is just sort of bad and she's actually kind of a bad person. There are parts of this film where she is literally gaslighting her girlfriend by making Abby feel like she is paranoid for being bothered that Harper stayed out all night with her ex-boyfriend and like barely texted her when she got home and it's just like she's really horrible in this. She is quite selfish like i think the thing that i really struggled with is the fact that like i like mackenzie davis she's an actress who's i you know Mm -hmm. i've enjoyed in other things but i was just really overwhelmed by like how not likable she was in this and there's also like a real lack of chemistry i think between harper and abby Um, and i think it's just quite funny when you compare like you've already said you compare the kind of chemistry between abby and riley who's the character that's played by aubrey plaza who's it's so so different it's just so different it's like almost electric between those two and i just wanted an entire film of of them right i assumed that the film was going to end up with abby just dumping harper on her ass and dating riley instead i was totally rooting for those two to get together riley is incredibly understanding and also so dan levy's character who is incredibly Dan Levy, I love it. And he's kind of on the periphery, I guess. He's this very... But he's a very good friend. I mean, he literally... I assume he spends like a thousand dollars to go and get Abby and make sure she's okay. Like very good friend. But he gives this, you know, really nice little speech at the end, which is quite memorable and kind of attempts to draw the whole thing together. However, he is 200% more patient and understanding with Harper than I would be. As in he... You know, he really does is as fair as he can be to Harper. And I understand that, as he says, like coming out is a a different journey for every single person and is a very big deal. But she is she is not nice um, on quite a few occasions. And I feel like if I were him, I'd just be like, you know what, mate? one of the things i will just say about the film itself is that like that particular monologue at the end the speech that dan levy gives to abby when she's sort of quite upset about the situation and you know sort of the way things are going with harper and everything he talks about the fact that like everyone's coming out is different and i think that it's interesting if you think about how the film itself is really more of a coming out story than it is a holiday film it's sort Mm -hmm. of like a coming out story packaged in a christmas film yeah you know dan levy addresses the fact that like everyone's coming out isn't perfect it wildly differs and that people's expectations should be adjusted accordingly there's there's a really really interesting piece i read earlier today on den of geek which i'll link to and it sort of talks about harper as a character and actually how 
problematic her behavior is and it was one thing that came out of a conversation that i had with one of our friends we were talking about the film because she's also seen it and one thing that she said to me was how it's interesting if you think about the fact that we often see toxic heterosexual relationships on screen all the time so you know Mm -hmm. like bad boyfriends Uh crappy girlfriends you see relationships like that on film and in tv all the time and there is sort of no reason to think that queer relationships should be perfect and held above as being 100% you know okay and happy all the time mm-hmm. as well so that's actually perhaps why a lot of people have been really overly critical mm-hmm. is because it is sort of on the one hand you're being given this sort of Christmas film that does feature the LGBT community and, and two queer characters as lead roles but then so it seems almost inevitable that there would be a bit of a backlash when actually sort of their behaviour is sort of like not as you were hoping for mm-hmm. um, so in the Den of Geek article Anyway, there's a quote I just wanted to read out because I think it's very interesting. It says, where the script gets into trouble is that it doesn't distinguish between Harper being closeted and her poor treatment of Abby. The two are separate issues and treating them as one does no favours to Harper, nor others struggling with the closet. As Dan Levy's beautiful monologue late in the movie alludes to, the closet is a safety mechanism, but it's not a free pass to treat people like garbage. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, I was like, oh, that's very interesting that it sort of really aligns with a lot of the discussion that we'd been having after we'd both watched it. It's absolutely true that there are I don't know there are you know a couple of situations I can already think of in the film where you know Harper basically ditches Abby and there's there's no justification for the way that she just you know leaves her to go off with other people or leaves her to get home by herself or just abandons her in lots of different situations and it's just it was really distressing to watch actually it really was which I guess is it shows that I did connect with Abby Kristen Stewart's character quite a lot and I really as you say I really enjoyed the dynamic between her and Riley and her relationship with Dan Levy's character whose name escapes me um John 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 like Abby and John as well as like a really nice friendship so I found it interesting I did enjoy it but I also found it quite frustrating and it made me feel crapper in the middle than I expected yeah definitely I've I've just found the reactions to it like so so interesting and I do Mm. I will say that I do actually quite want to watch it again just to see if it hits differently the second time which I probably will do because T hasn't watched it yet because I watched it on my own and I think there are elements of it that I did really like Dan Levy is like standout for me Mary Holland, who plays Jane, who's uh, Mm. one of Harper's sisters. She's hilarious. It's a great cast, isn't it? It's a really, really good cast. And I do think that, like, it was nice to see Kristen Stewart, like, do something different for a change. Mm -hmm. And she is just a delight. Like, I just love her. It's really funny to think about, like, my 2020 reaction to Kristen Stewart versus... Like, 10 years ago. Yeah, it's funny, actually, having done that Twilight rewatch and, and thought about what we thought about Twilight at the time. It's just really... I just love her. I just always want good things for her. So, And I was just really into her wearing a beanie. Her hair is so good in this. She's just... Her she's outfits, just everything. It's just great. Absolutely. So I'd be really interested to see what other people make of it if you do get the chance. And if you are thinking of uh, lining up a roster of Christmas films for the weeks ahead then I would definitely suggest adding it to your your lists. I myself will not be doing that because uh, that was my one festive film. Not even Muppets? You're not even gonna you're not even gonna watch Muppets? Um, no Muppets Christmas Carol? Probably not oh my this God. year. Wow. Just I mean I feel even less festive than I usually do in this cesspit of a year but um we'll see we'll see maybe I'll maybe I'll be on board with reviewing something else with you next year I don't even want to make that promise we'll see let's just don't promise me festive Kermit if you can't deliver thanks 
another film that we've been keen but perhaps a bit apprehensive to watch recently is Rebecca. So this came out a little while ago now so it came out in October 21st of October so which is actually weeks and weeks ago strangely enough I thought it was the other day but it has been a little while but we've really wanted to talk about this and we finally got around to watching it a couple of weeks ago after I'd gone through the hoo-ha of moving house and not having any internet (laughs) so Rebecca is a British romantic thriller apparently directed by Ben Wheatley who we've discussed uh, a few times before he's responsible for Kill List a field in England High Rise and Free Fire and the screenplays by Jane Goldman, Joe Shrapnel and Anna Waterhouse. The film is based on the 1938 novel of the same name by Daphne du Maurier and it stars Lily James, Army Hammer, Kristen Scott Thomas, Keely Hawes, Anne Dowd and Sam Riley. It was released in select theatres on the 16th of October and it dropped on Netflix on the 21st of October. And for those who might not know uh, a brief plot synopsis, A young newlywed arrives at her husband's imposing family estate on a windswept English coast and finds herself battling the shadow of his first wife, Rebecca, whose legacy lives on in the house long after her death. And this is the latest in a long line of adaptations for film and TV and radio and stage of de Maurier's novel. Best known is probably Alfred Hitchcock's Academy Award winning film from 1940, also called Rebecca. As I said, we've discussed Ben Wheatley before. We're big fans of his work. He's really great at kind of quirky, sort of indefinable movies. They're often also quite funny. They can be quite dark. Um, And he always seems to get really good performances out of his cast as well. Rebecca is such a dark story that it kind of makes sense that he might be attached to it. It's quite dark, it's haunting, it's gothic, and it kind of grows gradually more... Well, it just becomes more unhinged, actually, as you go on. It's it's a great story. It's a great gothic kind of masterpiece, and a great book. And what might feel like an unusual move for Wheatley to begin with then seems like it actually might be something that he might get a really great story and some great performances out of. So we watched this the other week. Lots of people have seen it already and there has been a lot of talk about it most of which hasn't been great. Do you do you want to talk a little bit about how you found this film when we watched it together? <clears throat> yes, okay. So as you wonderfully addressed there, when this was announced and when we saw the trailer, we well, when it was announced, we were intrigued, we were apprehensive. I recall we'd sort of said like, oh, it's fine, because like... Ben Wheatley will probably put a weird twist on it and it will be like really interesting and stuff. Yeah, he'll really go to town on the dark elements. Yeah, and then the trailer dropped and we were like, huh, uh, well, it looks a bit Instagrammy, but like maybe they're just, maybe they're hiding all of the Ben Wheatley aspects of it. Yeah, it will be like a surprise. Yeah, it'll be like the big twist will be that blah, blah. Um, so when we came to watch it, we were both just like, oh, God, we need to do this, don't we? Shall we? Let's just do it. Fine. It'll be nice. Nice two hours. And I, honest to God, if you had told me that this had been directed by like literally any other person, I would have been like, yeah, it makes sense. Because I cannot think of a film that is like, any less Ben Wheatley than... Where is Ben Wheatley here? There is ben. no trace of him. Ben, are you okay? Knock twice if you're the all right. The ghost of Ben Wheatley is not here. It's not in Mandalay. Where, where is he? That was my first reaction, was that like, huh, okay, cool. So there is no twist on it. He literally just obviously wanted to make an adaptation of Rebecca, which 
he's perfectly want to do absolutely fine you do you ben whitney get that netflix money but it just i was really baffled by how exactly they'd managed to make rebecca this like boring entity it's such a good story it's such a good story it's so dark it's so there's so much madness there i mean it is like a gothic haunting story mrs danvers is like easily one of the top five villains in literature she's awful (laughs) and you've got this amazing setting and house like manderley itself is a huge character in this book right so atmospheric and there's loads of twists and turns in this story and lots of suspense where did it go I just feel like we got an hour into it and I was just like, how long is left? Oh, cool, another hour of this. I just, I'm not just saying it because believe me, when it was announced that Army Hammer was going to be playing Maxim de Winter, I was like, sure, here for it. Let's go, handsome man. He is Maxim de Winter, isn't he? Or he should be. Yeah, and I I really like Lily James. Like Lily James has been in a number of things I really, really enjoy. But I just, I genuinely think there is absolutely no chemistry between them. There is none. It's so baffling to me that there have been quite a few rumours about them on set together, which I won't go into here. But, you know, people like to gossip, blah, 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 chemistry on set blah 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 whatever's going on there absolutely not though clearly not if anything like if this film is anything to go by they didn't get on at all because the performances feel like a big miss here they just have no chemistry whatsoever and i just think like army hammer looks great in a suit so from an aesthetic point of view getting to see him swan around these lovely locations in a number of like lovely mustard suit great yes Lily James looks lovely with blonde hair. She should consider that as like a life goal for herself. But I just think that where's yeah, the like... like... watching Downton Abbey or something. Right. But, like, what is... I don't know. Like, where where's all of like the gothic, gloomy, sinister vibe? Like, where is that gone? It just looks like... It's a lovely colour palette, which obviously immediately shifts once you get to Manderley. But it's just like... It's just like a really hot day in Cornwall, isn't it? I'm so baffled. Where is... It's so vibrant. It's like, oh, this looks... Like, it looks really, like, oh, really vibrant, looks lovely, as you say, like, really Instagrammable, just entirely the wrong story. I don't know, it's just, it's not Mandalay, it's not, there's no darkness, there's no fog. It's a bit twee, in a way. It really is. It's just, they're all on a jolly holiday, aren't they? And it just doesn't descend into, there is no chaos here, like, you know... Mrs. De Winter's driven to to the point of insanity, really, by her paranoia that Rebecca is everywhere. And there was none of that, really. She's just a bit sad. Lily James just seems a bit annoyed. Like, she's just, like, mildly disgruntled. Maxim De Winter is not mysterious at all. He's just Army Hammer, who just is Army also Hammer. incredibly 2D. We know what he's doing. The thing is, I just want to address as well, that, like, you know, we've talked about Army Hammer at length on this podcast before, so our feelings regarding army hammer aren't secret but i'm i am beginning to get concerned that he can't actually <laughs> act <laughs> i'm getting concerned thing is there are a few instances where army i mean obviously call me by your name is just like just truly he hit a dizzying height there and he's not gonna get back up there i think that was a I fluke don't think i don't know what happened there it was unreal but you know we've had some perfectly nice performances from him in other things as well social network and free fire <laughs> lovely 
But I don't know, is it like when you put him front and centre? I just don't really understand. Or whether he's just been put in the wrong things. I don't know. There was just no feverish romance there. There was no suspense. There was no entrapment. It was just a bit boring. And also, I know my opinion is correct on this because Robbie Collin liked it. And I know <laughs> if Robbie Collin likes something, I don't. That is true. That is the that's the very uh, foundation on which this podcast is built. Is that if Robbie Collin likes it, then we we must not like it. I just I'm baffled, honestly. Like I I I liked Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs. Danvers. She was great casting, actually. But she's we don't good. have we don't see enough of that. We don't have enough time with that character. No. She's not quite. She's just a bit of a bitch. She's not the villain that she is in the book. I don't. You think. just don't get any context. You just don't get. Like she just comes across as just being like mean and meddling, but you don't really get that like vid- villainous like vibe. That get off, old lady! Like what are you doing? But the the main thing about this film that is so confusing is that it's a Ben Wheatley film. I'm baffled. What on earth? Is he all right? Absolutely unreal. No, he's not. It's funny to think that what we will be talking about momentarily with regards to book adaptations and you know bringing the page to the screen one of my best cinema going experiences was when i was in glasgow and i went to the glasgow film festival and i saw uh, the uk premiere of high rise yeah. which was ben wheatley's adaptation of the jg ballard novel high rise and it was like one of the best things i really like that film i really really mm, rate it's a it great film. but he managed to bring to that story like his own ben wheatley twist despite the mm. fact that the book itself is like fucking weird so it's quite mm. capable that like he can put his stamp on something that already has a very clear vision there's absolutely no reason why he couldn't have adapted rebecca and still put like a ben wheatley spin on it there's a fragment of ben wheatley in the kind of masked ball scene where it was like, oh, 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 is this almost going to... Oh, no, it's not. It's that was just... the only point at which I was like, fuck, this is going to get weird, like, kill this level, like, yeah. strangeness. No. No, it's not. So, there we go. Can't say we'll be watching that again. No, I mean, I'm just baffled. I think, I, you know, I think generally across the board, it hasn't gone down particularly well, apart from Robbie Collins. So, it will be really interesting to see where Ben Willie goes from this. Apparently, it's the Meg too. so... <laughs> Great. R.I.P. Ben Wheatley's career. April. As you so beautifully mentioned, uh, we were talking about Rebecca. We've been, well, try not to dwell on it, I'd say. But it did get us thinking a little bit about book adaptations, uh, specifically adaptations of books for film. And we decided this is something that we haven't really chatted about before. We certainly haven't done it on the podcast. And there are so many great book adaptations out there. There are equally some very horrendous ones out there. It can be quite a, um, I don't know, there's there's a fine line between the two. And it, it's certainly a hotly contested topic. So we thought we'd have a quick discussion about some of our favourite book adaptations or book adaptations into films that we think uh, are done particularly well. I want to point out that this is this is film adaptation, that books to films in particular. We're not we're not talking about television because that's a whole other area. Sorry. Well, this podcast would be like six hours if we do that. It's long enough already. So let's have a bit of a chat about our favourite or some standout book adaptations for us. And this has mostly made me realise going through this exercise that I probably need to read more of the original books that many films are based on 
hard same i think the thing that we will just say off the bat is that we're only going to be discussing things that we've actually read the books of because we can't really fairly we cannot give a fair assessment of whether it's a good adaptation if you have not read the source text come on guys you really like i can i can take all your rotten tomatoes reviews and pretend to agree with you but i don't actually know because i haven't read it so book adaptations are not we're not short of them across the board i was really you know i kept thinking as even when i was compiling my lists and thinking like yeah i'm finished i would then think of another film but the thing that i was realizing is that like a lot of my favorite films that are adapted from books i haven't bothered to read the books so when we do go through our lists there's probably going to be like a few like massively glaring omissions that i should have mentioned but it's it's literally because i've not either not bothered to do the homework so i've not read the book or i've just simply not felt the need it's i can't read every book in the world guys it's just we both have book literary based jobs bookish bookish book, jobs book adjacent jobs but even we don't have all the time to just sit around and read everything so do you, you want to start with some of your favorites i haven't shared any of these with you well apart from one of them but a thing i will say is that do we want to get the call me by a name elephant out of the room oh, first i feel like we probably should i have purposefully not put it on my list mostly because i felt it was a given oh yes well it was in it was on my list i kind of picked five films that um i really like for various reasons and then there's just quite a long list of other strong contenders i did include call me by your name in that um the luca guadagnino film hate to be a broken record so sorry everyone but you know we we talked about it before we kind of saw the film before reading the book but they were almost a simultaneous experience because i think we both watched the film and then read the book afterwards and it was really nice because watching this film did not lessen the impact of the book for me, nor did it feel like the film didn't do justice to the book. I think they are, it's one of those rare occasions where they feel, in my heart, quite equal. Mm, Yes, absolutely. And film-wise, some of the strongest chemistry on film that I've ever seen, soundtrack's amazing, the visuals, pretty much if you rewind and go back to We Are Who We Are, all of those things are applied to this film. It's just great, isn't it? And I, I know a couple of people who read the book and weren't as enamored by Andre Ackerman's writing style but for me I just I really I really like his writing style I think it's beautiful so definitely agree I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that we read the book after seeing the film I think as I've mentioned a number of times you don't like that I absolutely hate doing that it's like my absolute pet peeve in the entire world I don't even know why I don't I just don't like it I think the thing is it clouds my judgment of the book because I'm just automatically thinking of the film but Mm. I do think for me that one thing that reading Call Me By Name did confirm to me about the film is, is that actually like Timothy and Army do really embody those characters and I think the one thing that also came up in our discussion with Claire when we talked about Call Me By A Name and then we talked about Find Me is Mm -hmm. that it's really hard to sort of separate those two now because actually army army is like forevermore he will always be oliver to me which i think is actually probably why i have issues with him in in things generally because he's just oliver it's interesting in that for the fan base i think it does both the film and the book occupy this they're sort of equally adored like they're equally strong as you say so yes that's the big old call me by your name shaped elephant in the room it's a lovely peach shaped elephant though so it's fine it is it is i tried to uh, well this is quite different (laughs) 
<laughs> so on the flip side, I promised myself to only include one Stephen King adaptation <laughs> in my list because there are many, many great ones and also many bad ones. But I couldn't just do like a. I've, I've chosen five films and I didn't want them all to be Stephen King. I would just say that part of me was like really anticipating that you would just bring like an entire Stephen King roster to the table. And I wouldn't have even been mad at it. You wouldn't have even been mad. Bless you. That's so nice of you to say. I decided not to go with The Shining and I have gone with the first book adaptation that popped into my head actually when we first started talking about this as a topic and that was Carrie which is a 1976 film by Brian De Palma. I chose it over The Shining because Kubrick's film obviously is heralded as one of the greats but can be quite polarising and Stephen King himself famously doesn't like it but I don't think anyone I know isn't a fan of De Palma's film It's been quite a while since I've read the book, but I do feel like, I do remember feeling like De Palma's film is a faithful enough adaptation of the book, but is also a bit tighter. We've discussed King and um, why King is quite hard to adapt before. And a lot of it has to do with sort of the interiority of the characters. I wouldn't say his books are particularly dialogue heavy. And we do spend a lot of time inside characters' brains. And also he's very good at ensemble casts. In Carrie, you've got quite a lot of shifting of perspectives between characters, which could be hard to produce on film. And I think De Palma's film is amazing at it. I wish I had seen the stage play of Carrie, by the way. The closest I've got is a rendition in Riverdale, which I imagine is probably not the same. Just as an aside, I was just thinking about stage play. Sissy Spacek is amazing cast as Carrie just so brilliant so Carrie was my Stephen King pick I will however say very quickly that The Shining, Stand By Me, Misery, Christine, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, It, the first It, the Andy Muschietti 2017 I think is pretty good, The Mist, uh, Gerald's Game, Dead Zone and Doctor Sleep are also um, very very good Stephen King adaptations The other film I went for was um, another horror film, and that was Let the Right One In, which I had almost forgotten existed, which is a shame (laughs) because it was one of my favourite films for ages. And that was directed by Thomas Alfredson, based on the novel of the same name. The film focuses more on the relationship between Oscar and Eli, whereas the book features more of the sort of the vampire tropes. But I do think it's a beautiful film. So, And I really, really enjoyed that book very, very much. Um, and again, that's been adapted to, to stage. And I did go and see that. And it was fantastic. But I do like Let the Right One In. One that you might be pleased with that I picked. There were three, I think there were three David Fincher films that made it onto my list. Love this. Love I this I decided me. to go with Zodiac. Oh, controversial. This is so interesting to me. Please elaborate at length now. Because I know you love that film. It's one of your favourite films. Quick sidebar, it's David Fincher's best film, just so you know, thanks. It is. I think it is. And this is definitely a case of the film being superior to the book. So I did read the book. I did enjoy it. But it is a bit of a slog. It's obviously, it's non-fiction and it's obviously not designed necessarily to be suspenseful, but it could do with a bit of a dramatic kick up the butt. I have a copy of Zodiac by my bed, which has been sat there for about three years, half finished because it is a slog. And I say that as someone who like adores Zodiac as a film, is interested in the Zodiac case as a, you know, thing. It's a slog though, isn't it? Yeah. So the, the, The film itself is a a bit of a miracle compared to the book in terms of, yeah, as you say, making a, I don't know, a thriller, a really engaging 
enthralling thriller. Zodiac is a great film. The book is a bit of a slog. And it's really interesting to see how that transferred from this non-fiction book, which can be a bit like A happened, then B happened, then C happened, into a film with some really fantastic performances. And is one of those like police procedural. I love a police procedural. And it's one of those kind of those police procedural thrillers that I just think is like top notch. So that's why I chose that. Brilliant choice. Love that's that. That's four. And then one more, I really struggled because actually my list, which we'll go into, I'll do a quick shout out of other strong contenders after you've spoken about yours, because I didn't want to go on and on. I tried, I think there's a whole category of books that defy being adapted into film. And it's kind of a miracle when they are. So the one I chose was Train Spotting, 1996 Danny Boyle, because that book by Irvin Welsh of the same name is it just shouldn't be translatable onto screen. I really don't think it should. And other films that fall into that category are A Clockwork Orange um, easily. A Clockwork Orange, you need a literal glossary to get through. (laughs) And I think Fight Club as well is a very strange film to be able to adapt at all onto screen. But so it was that kind of category of books and I don't know why I chose Train Spotting. I'm not saying these are my five favourites of all time, I have to say, but they're sort of like a good spread, I think, of interesting things that have been done. But I just think Train Spotting's great. And it, it is that like you read the book, it's a great book, but you just think there's just no way you could make this into a, like a comprehensible film. And it, I just think it's very cleverly done. Um, I think Danny Boyle had to cut out quite a lot and streamline it. But yeah, I think it's still really effective. It's really harrowing. I mean, the book is harrowing enough and the film is very harrowing too. But it's got a killer soundtrack as well. So that's why I chose Train Spotting. So I'm going to leave it at five and uh, hand over to you. What were your, some of your key picks? Okay, I loved your list. Thanks for sharing. I do think it's really interesting because there are so many of those that I've not read the book of. Like I've still not to this day read Train Spotting at all. It's great, but it is again, it is one of those things that you can't zip through it because of, because of the way it's. You have to quite literally read it in a Scottish accent in your head. Like it took me double the time because I had to read it in my head, like hear myself in my head with a Scottish accent. I think it's why I find so much of Owen Welsh's work inaccessible for me personally, just because it's Mm -hmm. so dense in the way that it's rendered. And Mm -hmm. I find that really hard to get my head around for whatever reason. So Mm -hmm. it it is interesting to think about how it's sort of like almost, and it is that also that idea of like the unadaptable being adaptable. Mm. I'm so interested in that. Yeah. Come to talk about. So we don't actually have any overlap, which I think is a miracle. So, I mean, to be honest, this was a really, it was, it was a useful exercise in proving to me that there were so many things that I like that I haven't read the book of, but then it was also really Mm -hmm. interesting to think of how many films I do enjoy have been adapted from books so I've kind of gone try to go for things some that are like really obvious and then mm-hmm. some that are slightly more left field just because I think they're very good adaptations so I can't tell if this is obvious or not but my first pick is The Virgin Suicides Lovely. which is the 1999 adaptation directed by Sofia Coppola it was based on Jeffrey Genadee's, his, um 1993 novel um, so this is about a family so it's the Lisbon sisters who live in Grosse Pointe Michigan which is just outside Detroit and it's 
the story of them and then how they come to all take their own lives and the reason I love this film so much and do think it's such a good adaptation of the book is that the book itself is written from the perspective of the boys who lived in the neighbourhood same neighbourhood as the Lisbon sisters and Mm. they are writing as adults about the deaths of these girls and how it impacted the neighbourhood and how it impacted them and Sofia Coppola takes this book that is written from a very male perspective it's written from a male perspective but also does have a very good rendering of the experience of being a teenage girl in a suburban environment but Sofia Coppola takes it and just makes it she just gets rid of a lot of the kind of male gaze aspects of it and Mm. I think it really helps that it's helmed by a female director who is sort of showing female adolescence in a very specific period of time which is the 1970s and she just does it in a way that to me is just so atmospheric so like the thing I think about when I think about virgin suicides is the haziness of it Mm. it's the heat of it set over the course of a summer and I just think that you know that book in so many ways is unadaptable because it is written from the point of a narrator who is just recounting the girls and the whole point of the book is that we can never really know them because they're not there and they're gone and they're not there Mm -hmm. to tell their story but the thing I think that Sophia does so well is that she tells the Lisbon sisters stories from their perspective Mm -hmm. So that's a very good adaptation and I thoroughly recommend everyone read that book if they haven't done it already. Apparently I was shocked with the revelation that the person living in my household has never seen the film nor read the book, has managed to hide that for 10 years. I wrote my master's thesis on The Virgin Suicides, the book, so that was slightly horrifying to discover earlier today. (laughs) Not that I'm bearing a grudge about that at all in any capacity. So... You have already mentioned David Fincher. Uh, loved the fact that you chose Zodiac. I did not choose Zodiac because I had not finished the book, but I did do a slightly cheeky double whammy mm-hmm. because I did Fight Club, yep. which is the 1999 adaptation of Chuck Palahniuk's 96 book. Of course. And Gone Girl. Yes, that was my other, that was my third pick. So that's the adaptation of Gillian Flynn's 2012 novel. And the reason I've included these both together is because I think that the two books themselves are... They are the type of book that once you've read it and once you've gotten to the twist, Mm -hmm. I think it's such an interesting, or for me anyway, reading both of the books, it was such an interesting reading experience when you get to this point and and the perspective of the book is suddenly changed because of Mm -hmm. a revelation. In that sense, the films shouldn't necessarily have worked particularly, especially Fight Club. Mm -hmm. But I just do think that they are two very 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 good adaptations one of my favorite cinema going experiences was when i went to see gone girl and i'd read the book previously so i obviously knew absolutely what was coming and i remember sitting in the cinema and the the reaction when the 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 thing happens was like one of those moments that i was just like i really love cinema so much like i love the experience of going to the cinema because everyone just had this like oh my god reaction to it and they're also just really interesting performances of course like at this stage it's really sort of stupid to even think about talking about brad pitt and ed norton and the impact <laughs> that th- those two as the narrator and tyler durden to just think about the cultural legacy of them as characters mm. the cultural legacy of fight club i reread fight club of last year i think did you yeah and it was the first time i'd read it since i was a teenager and i'd got really really obsessed with fight club and it was really interesting to read it in like the 2019 context when you think about how elements of it have been appropriated by the far right. And it was, so it was really interesting to reread it. But I just think that David Fincher adaptation 
Fight Club especially is just like it's very very iconic and a very good example of like taking a book and taking its themes and really running with it mm. and Gone Girl just has like one of the most interesting Ben Affleck performances ever um, so there's that one one I I just snuck in actually I kicked something out while we were talking and just because I thought about it was You Were Never Really Here which mm. is the Joaquin Phoenix starring film directed by one of my favourite directors Lynn Ramsey it's based on the 2013 novella by Jonathan Ames. We've talked about You Were Never Really Here, I think, before on this podcast. We have, yeah. That book is not very long. Obviously, it's a novella. It's very short. Mm-hmm. And the film itself isn't very long either. And I think it's... the. I think the, this is a rare instance for me where I think the film is even better than the book because it takes so many of the kind of tricky themes that the book addresses and it really builds it out. And I think mm. that Joaquin Phoenix really inhibits that character in a way where I think that, like... I can only ever associate with him. You know, I I have no Mm -hmm. interest in going back to that book at this stage. And that was something I was thinking a lot about, actually, is what happens when the film almost eclipses the book and you sort of struggle to go back. Yeah, definitely. That's definitely something that, for me, I've really struggled with reading books after I've seen the films because, actually, if the film's ten times better, what's the point? Mm -hmm. It's funny, actually, I've just realised I've got two Edward Norton films on this list, so there we go. Um, So this one is The 25th Hour, Mm -hmm. which is a 2002 film that's directed by Spike Lee. It's based on a 2001 book written by David Benioff, as in David Benioff of Game of Thrones. Mm -hmm. The film itself, so it's a really good cast, actually. It's like... Edward Norton, Brian Cox, Philip Seymour Hoffman tells the story of a man called Monty's last 24 hours of freedom as he prepares to go into prison for seven years for dealing drugs. And this is like, I remember picking this book up at the library. Absolutely no idea why I decided to read it. I think I must, I think it probably just had a really nice cover. I remember reading it when I was a teenager, just got fully enthralled by it. The book itself is is brilliant. It's worth reading. And then it wasn't until a few years ago that I actually got around to watching the Spike Lee film. And it's just amazing. So the film itself came out in 2002. And I think elements of it had to be rewritten post 9-11 because they were midway through filming. And the film itself actually is one of my favourite Spike Lee films. And it's a really interesting look at New York in the media aftermath of 9-11 and I find that films that incorporate or address 9-11 can often be a bit corny or a bit they miss the mark somehow but 25th hour doesn't put it front and center because it's not part of the plot it just happens to be a thing that's happening in the background but it takes a lot of the themes that are present in the book and sort of bends them around things that were particularly prevalent in American culture post 9-11 and it's just really brutally shot and it's just a really really standout Edward Norton performance really brilliant Philip Seymour Hoffman performance so if no one has seen that one or read the book I think they're both very very interesting to explore Oh, I've just realised I've got two more and that's fine. I've been what? really cheeky. I've got seven. You've got seven? Okay, I'll blast these really quickly. So Drive. Drive is based on a book, guys. Did you know that? So 2011, directed by Nicholas Winding Refn, uh, starring Ryan Gosling. It's based on Drive by James Salas, which is a neo-noir novel. The book's really good, actually. Um, and there was a sequel called Driven, but I haven't read that because why would you? But yeah, love that film so much. Could wax lyrical about it. Won't bother. You've all seen Drive. You know the cultural legacy of that scorpion jacket. And the other one is just Brokeback Mountain. 
Oh, of course, yes. <sighs> Directed by Ang Lee, 2005, based on the Anne Proulx short story. I feel like the film just expands on the, the, the themes of the story so much. And I think I did read an interview where Anne Proulx said that like she was really pleased with what Ang Lee did within that film. And obviously there's two standout Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger performances in that film. Just absolutely heartbreaking. Despite the fact that I love that film a great deal, I think I've only probably watched it a handful of times because mm. it absolutely obliterates me in a very similar way that Call Me By Your Name does. So that's my five, which is actually seven, really, sorry. Absolute cheater. No, it's fine, it's good. It's Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, how some of the best adaptations aren't always the most faithful. Some of them do something very completely different or a kind of remixing of a kind, which is really great. There's also quite a few directors that crop up quite a few times, as you said. Yes. So like David Fincher crops up quite a lot. I don't think I didn't quite... I don't know why I hadn't quite acknowledged that Frank Darabont has adapted a lot of Stephen King. Ang Lee comes up a couple of times. Ang Lee also directed Sense and Sensibility, the 1995 film based on the Jane Austen novel, which is also very good. I think Francis Ford Coppola comes up, obviously, with Apocalypse Now, based on Heart Darkness. I mean, if you want to count Bram Stoker's Dracula, you can, because <laughs> it is quite a nice adaptation. I had a bunch of others that I don't want to go into with a lot of detail, but I'll pull just a couple so um, that I wanted to acknowledge. So Clockwork Orange, obviously... Uh, based on the novel by Anthony Burgess, directed by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, Princess Bride, Rob Rayner, based on the William Goldman novel. Uh, Fight Club. The Lord of the Rings series is an interesting one because I wouldn't say it's... They're not films that I absolutely adore, but again, Lord of the Rings is something that should basically be impossible to put onto screen. It's such a vast universe. And actually, I think... And I think most people would agree that Peter Jackson does pretty well. The Hobbit is a completely different issue. The Exorcist is based on a novel by William Peter Blatty. And Rosemary's Baby is also a horror book, which has been adapted to screen. And they are probably improved upon, I would argue, in their film versions. Perks of Being a Wallflower... Uh, I listed Breakfast at Tiffany's. The Handmaiden was one that I think someone else brought up. Park Chan-wook, um, based on Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. Which oh, yeah. Is, yeah, a really interesting adaptation. It's very different. Um, so sort of based loosely on Fingersmith by Sarah Waters, which is a great book. There are even a couple I thought of like 10 Things I Hate About You, which is loosely based on The Taming of the Shrew. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah, that's true. But, you know, is is nothing like The Taming of the Shrew or Shakespeare in many, many ways. Little Women, which we wax lyrical about by Greta Gerwig. See, that was missing from my list because I've not read Little Women. Controversial. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very wholesome book. I don't know. I, th- I mean, I connected with characters on screen maybe a little bit more, but a lot of people have a very long history with that book and absolutely adore it. So I think it's quite hard. They're the sort of characters that are quite hard to see on screen sometimes when you, they mean so much to you in book form and you really have to nail it because they're not always going to be what people have imagined in their heads. I think I'll probably leave it there. There are a couple of others like The Innocence, which is based on Henry James's Turn of the Screw, directed by Jack Clayton, which is very atmospheric. And a really interesting adaptation. Room, based on the novel by Emma Donoghue as well, was one. I only watched Room a few months ago, actually, the Lenny Abrahamson film. Uh, I really enjoyed that. Wes watched American Psycho last night. so American Psycho is on my list because I, I think the film is better than the book. Yes, definitely. American Psycho, Mary Harron, is definitely better than the book. I would agree. 
One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was another one that I'd thought of based on the novel by Ken Kesey. Anyway, I will I will leave that there because I could go on forever. Do you have any others you want to quickly shout out? I have too many, so I'll just pick some out as well. So one that very nearly made my list was If Beale Street Could Talk, which is the mm. Barry Jenkins adaptation of James Baldwin's novel. I really enjoyed that film. I think it went under a lot of people's radar because it was a sort of, I don't know, maybe perhaps came out at a strange time, but I think Barry Jenkins does a really good rendering of that book which is a wonderful read. High Fidelity, the 2000 adaptation of Nick Hornby's 1995 mm. book. We've talked about High Fidelity before, obsessed with it, uh, love that film. Wildlife, again, is something we've mentioned on the podcast before, which is Paul Dano's adaptation of Richard Ford's 1990 novel. I don't know why I didn't include that on my top list, really, because I think it's such a good adaptation of a book mm. which is so much about interiority and feelings, but I think that it is a very faithful adaptation. Nocturnal Animals, which is directed by Tom Ford, which is based on oh, Austin Wright's book. A, yeah, I forget that that's a book. It's a really interesting sort of adaptation. You've got things like To Kill a Mockingbird, obviously. Uh, no Country for Old Men, which is the Coen Brothers adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's novel. That's probably one that I think is definitely one of the best book adaptations ever. I've also got Winter's Bone, which is uh, Deborah Granick's adaptation of Daniel Woodrell's novel. Um, I read that when I was on my MA and it's actually a very very faithful adaptation of a book which is extremely bleak uh, then I've got fun things like Fantastic Mr Fox which is Wes Anderson's oh, uh, take on Roald Dahl which I think most people have seen and loved Matilda of course is probably the best Roald Dahl adaptation uh, directed by Danny DeVito I also really like I say like because it's extremely bleak but uh, I think John Hillcoat's adaptation of another Cormac McCarthy book The Road oh, is yeah, really good road, yeah. that just feels like an absolutely punishing two and a half hours because and that's exactly what my reading experience was of reading that I remember vividly sitting in my bed at university just reading it in one shot which is very easy to do if you've ever read any of Cormac McCarthy's books because he doesn't use punctuation and yeah so and and I've also got a few that you mentioned as well Uh, Apocalypse Now because it's a very good adaptation and moves the setting to Vietnam and you know how I feel about Vietnam April loves Vietnam love it Um, I also have things like Persepolis which is the 2007 adaptation of the graphic novel and uh, also Ghost World as well which is uh, another graphic novel adaptation about Ghost World we also had a ton of other suggestions from lots and lots of other people which we thank you for they're really interesting and what we'll do is rather than spending five minutes reading them out we'll we'll link to them on um our web press site on the blog so you can take a look at them because there are some really interesting films there quite a few of them i didn't even realize were books and also a few of them i haven't uh, heard of at all so i'm going to be checking those out as soon as i can so we will link through what are your favorite book adaptations please let us know on twitter give us a shout um we'd love to know if you've got any that are particularly bad as well that you think were very very bad indeed we're always interested to hear those as well because we we weren't a huge fan of rebecca this time around were we absolutely not no so after all that book chat uh, what is your obsession of the week, please? My obsession of the week is probably going to be quite boring, but it is Harry Styles. I watched the behind the scenes of the Golden Video video. Oh yes, the video video, the video of uh, a video that is behind the scenes of the shoot of the Golden Video, um, and it just filled me with absolute joy. So I think, as ever, it is probably him. 
What about you? Well, uh, mine is Ryan Gosling. Because is it? We haven't been in the Ryan Gosling. We haven't been with Ryan Gosling for a while. <laughs> I know, just missed him so much. Ryan Gosling, baby goose, king of my heart. He turned 40 on the 12th of November. Jesus, did he really? Yeah, and unintentionally celebrate this, I decided to watch The Ides of March, which is a film that is ostensibly not good but i mm. find it quite comforting to watch please don't make me explain why beyond yeah. ryan gosling it's a, a terrible film i just find it i can just put it on and can zone out that's lovely it's nice to have stuff in the background sometimes. yeah so i had a week off last month and i just ended up unintentionally doing like a ryan gosling rewatch and just watching loads of stuff i haven't watched in ages and it was just so comforting i just have continually found comfort in ryan gosling's work so that was just nice really it's just nice to think about him i hope he's having a nice time being a dad a nice thing about ryan gosling linking back to de moi is that he sometimes comes up on um that instagram feed and it's pretty much always just saying really nice things about how he's just a very cool chill guy so that's nice isn't it all of the stuff on de moi just it, like with him is just like yeah he's fine he's just nice like yeah I, th- I, I do just think that he just really likes being a dad, being at home. Like he hasn't, he's basically done nothing really since his kids were born, which I just really love. I just love well, that not? for him. Props to him. Just love it. Take you do you. you. You do you, Ryan Gosling. You be weird and like Halloween a great deal. Don't we all? Uh, so that's us done. You can find us online, Twitter, we're at The Thirst, Podbean, we're The Thirst Pod. Uh, you can subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts by searching for The Thirst. You can also find us on Spotify as well. If you have Instagram, we're The Thirst, at The Thirst Pod there. Um, and if you're on Facebook as well, you can find us by searching for The Thirst Pod. Thank you very much. Bye. Goodbye. <laughs>